Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Before we start today, I'd like to welcome new patrons Dana Kelly, Neil Robotham, and Thomas C. Willett, who have become lovable chimney sweeps. I really appreciate the support. I also want to say a thank you to David Ackis for the PayPal donation. Very kind of you. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Jodie in Florida for her lovely five-star review. Quote, I have spent a wonderful few months binging this phenomenal podcast and I'm kind of sad I've caught up. I will have to be patient. I was looking for some history on Victoria after watching the show on Netflix. Chris Fernandez Packham is the type of enthusiastic host that I love. Well-researched, clearly enthralled with his subject, and willing to discuss difficult aspects of history, especially as it relates to colonialism. I greatly appreciate his contextualisation of events, including the season he spent on the years leading up to Victoria's ascendancy, and the deep dives he takes into particular persons, events, and themes in his minisodes. I cannot recommend this podcast highly enough. It is the gold standard. End quote. Thank you, Jodie. I'm delighted you found the show and that it is hitting the spot. I've also had a great listener review from Cattell in Belgium. Hope I'm saying your name correctly. Quote, just to be clear, I love my job, but I'm always a little bit sad when I arrive at school. I'm a teacher because that's when I have to turn off my radio and this wonderful podcast. I'm at the cholera episode now and I have absolutely loved it from the beginning. I watch a lot of historical documentaries and read lots of history books. Yes, I'm a proud history nerd, but I have learned so much more listening to Chris, especially about the social history. Whenever I think of the Victorian age, I now hear his voice in my head, wonderfully researched, and the passion he talks about is very, very contagious. Please, please, please keep it up for a very long time, end quote. Thank you. I've only been to Belgium a couple of times to see Bruges, but it is absolutely one of my favourite places and a must for history fans. Don't worry, there are years of podcasting ahead and I've got a load of topics to cover. I have even got a Halloween special in the works this year. This is my first review from Belgium and it is really sweet. As I've said before, The show has tens of thousands of listeners around the world, but most of the reviews come from the USA, Australia and the United Kingdom. So if you are one of my lovely Irish, Spanish or Greek listeners, why not leave a review on Apple Podcasts? Or if you are listening in Sweden, leave some more reviews from there. If you are in Denmark, why not leave even more reviews than Sweden has to make up for the football results? What about all you listeners in Mexico? How about sitting down with a nice agua fresca and writing a nice review? The show is proudly looking at the whole world through the Victorian era, so I love seeing how it is reaching out across borders. Please remember to spread the word about the show and recommend it. Personal recommendations are a great way to help people find the show. Now, it's time to finish our visit to South Africa. After their long voyage... The settlers were arriving in their new world. Not that everything had arrived as expected, 
things hadn't always survived the rough seas and many settlers found small portable items had disappeared, probably into a sailor's chest. The poorest settlers didn't get land at all to look forward to. They were supposed to go and become agricultural labour for richer settlers. For most, it was an unpleasant realisation that the settler's expedition leader was going to be handing out the land. That land had to be cleared, settled and perhaps held against hostiles. I think it's probably good to think of these settlers as more like the homesteaders of the American West than the image we might have of pampered upper-class rulers that was emerging in the empire in India. They were expected to live on a farm they carved out themselves with almost all necessities made themselves or traded with their few neighbours, as a poem in 1844 put it, Oh, what a gay, what a rambling life a settler's leading, sporing cattle, doing battle, quite jocose, winning, losing, wigs abusing, shopping now, then mutton breeding, never fearing, persevering, on he goes, end quote. People were able to find the strangest niches for themselves. Schoolmaster William Howard, for example, became a settler leader. Because of his skills at calligraphy, he also became a frequent witness for official documents, weddings, and entering the names in the marriage register. More than violence from native raids, there was one great fear amongst the British establishment, and that was the possibility that the divine class system and aristocracy might break down in this new territory. What if, they worried, people worked hard, earned money, and ended up better off than their genteel superiors? After all, many gentry had applied for this scheme because rising costs of living in England meant they could no longer live in the manner to which they were accustomed. As one Mr Barker said, quote, Presently, upon a large farm where I can make a living that cannot provide for a family of eight sons and one daughter without reducing them to the lowest ranks in society, which ill accords with the previous knowledge of being descended from the first. We are unanimous in the decision to emigrate, end quote. I honestly don't know what he expected frontier life to be like, but I think he was probably in for a shock. Thomas Pringle moaned, quote, The pyramid of civil society is turned topsy-turvy. Classes who once occupied the upper grades must necessarily sink and will ere long be degraded into the servants and dependents of the more fortunate mechanics and mendicants who came out under them, end quote. This is crucial. The British establishment did not see this as an opportunity where hard work in new circumstances should lead to success and social advancement. That was not the point. Social advancement, social mobility and increased prosperity for the lower classes was seen as a bad thing, not a good one. The point of the scheme was to provide extra space for the gentry create a new English landed gentry in the new land and for the otherwise potentially unemployable poor to go off and do what the British establishment expected them to do, work hard for the gentry 
and stop complaining. They should be grateful with bread, beer and being read the Sunday sermons, not getting above themselves or worse, organising politically. Oh, and if they would kindly join the army as well and act as a buffer against the natives, that would be fabulous. Naturally, the traditional ethnic tensions were also baked in with English, Welsh, Scots and various Irish groups all split up and given different areas only to migrate and intermingle once they landed. Imported grudges were picked up with vigour. I'd like you to bear in mind that it is easy for a modern person to assume the old mindset was aristocracy versus meritocracy and the aristocracy were deliberately keeping talented people down. But the real problem was that the aristocracy didn't see it that way. They felt it was the aristocracy that were the talented ones because of breeding and God. And those outside, by definition, weren't talented. So it wasn't a case of keeping talent down, but rather preserving existing talent from being diluted by the mob. It was almost an oxymoron to claim that a commoner could be talented and therefore deserve to rise up the social hierarchy. Much, of course, would depend upon the liberal principles, or lack of them, from the aristocratic question. That might seem odd, but honestly, you see versions of this kind of self-justification in every society, from aristocracies to theocracies, where it is clear rich people are more holy because otherwise God wouldn't let them be rich. Or in capitalism, where a billionaire claims to be rich because they are talented and hardworking, and the evidence for them being talented and hardworking is that they are rich. A neat, circular and self-supporting argument. The verse must be true, therefore. If you are poor, it must be because you are less talented or hardworking. Or in communist systems, where the glorious leader of the day is the embodiment of the will of history, or he wouldn't be the leader, and the evidence for this is that he is the leader. What is actually at work? is the natural tendency of humans who benefit from existing power structures to justify the way they benefit from those structures and therefore claim that this proves those structures are the best and the results that benefit them are both inevitable and righteous. This is problematic since it is replicated across societies and dovetails with considerable research showing that talent or hard work are not as important to success as luck. Moreover, wealth distribution tends to revert to an 80-20 rule of distribution in any society, where the top 20% of the population have 80% of the resources, and the remaining 80% of the population 20% of the resources. It varies according to society, of course, and time period, but... As the MIT review noted, whilst the 80-20 rule means following a power law, by definition, intelligence has to follow a bell curve, with most people being average. There is no way for most of a society to be of above average intelligence. Hours worked also has to follow this bell curve, since hours available are limited no matter how wealthy or intelligent you are. There are 24 hours in a day, and that is not 
non-negotiable. A billionaire cannot work a billion hours more than a regular person. We can see that it has to follow that many intelligent and hardworking people will fall outside the top 20, despite being just as intelligent and hardworking as the people within it. Alessandro Pluccino, and you can tell I don't know how to pronounce that name, I apologise, at the University of Cantonia, has done extensive modelling and determined that one of the most important factors in entering the top 20 wealth holders is luck, whether that luck is to be born an aristocrat or the luck to be born in a stable modern democracy and meet the right people willing to loan money for a startup. This presents a problem to the existing members of the top 20. They want to preserve their own position and their children's position in the top. But they can only do that by either increasing their own wealth or keeping new members out, even if their own children are only average or below average intelligence and technically should not be in the top 20. As with all hierarchies, the incumbents will attempt to resist new entrants since they will devalue the membership of the 20 and push some people out of it. In other words, society's startup dynamic with people finding a place and creating a hierarchy. Then the people who benefit from it encourage others to keep things the same as they are. Eventually, the society becomes ossified, stagnant, and is unable to change internally. It tends to either decay and retreat into political infighting and possible civil war, or become susceptible to systems shocks on the outside. The only alternative is that the society accepts it has to remodel itself and redistribute places within the 20%. Please note that does not necessarily mean redistribute as in move money in a socialist fashion. It simply means changing the membership and makeup of the 20. For an aristocracy, the way to determine membership of the 20% is simple. Restrict it to people who are part of the aristocracy by birth or marriage and who maintain the appropriate connections to title. I think this pretty clearly shows you why the Victorians were so absolutely obsessed with social status and aristocratic titles. Settlers and colonialism can act as direct challenges to existing hierarchies since they can move outside the existing social structures, yet still gain access to them in a way that other kinds of outsider, such as an immigrant, might find difficult. A good example in the Victorian era are those soldiers and administrators who went to places like India, became rich through empire, then used the public school and university system to turn their children into lawyers, doctors, judges and politicians. That allowed a rebalancing of the normal 80-20 for a limited period and made minor changes around the membership of the top 20 but didn't push things so far that the bulk of the top 20 were unhappy. What was happening with the settlers as they left Britain for Australia, South Africa and Canada was again an increase in opportunities to shake up social structures and hierarchies. 
When looked at this way, you can suddenly see why the British aristocracy consistently acted in ways that seem short-sighted to us, because we assume their goal would be to improve society in ways we would like, because they were in charge of it, when actually their goal was, perhaps unconsciously, to keep the 80-20 balance undisturbed. A good example was settler Benjamin North. He was a poor labourer in the new settlements. If he had remained in Britain, he would almost certainly have remained extremely poor. But in the colony, he saw an opportunity to trade with the Corsa, and over 20 years was able to make the staggering sum of between 40 to 60,000 pound. Victorian aristocracy would never accept him, but in colonial South Africa, he was able to become rich. The cost was not being able to access cosmopolitan London and its new technologies, but since he wouldn't have accessed them as a poor labourer, it wasn't really a loss. In South Africa, the Governor Lord Somerset himself was an arch-Tory, and he believed that the whole point of the scheme was to reinforce the existing hierarchies and to provide him with farmers and potential soldiers. You can see how his internal political views dovetail neatly with his benefits under the 80-20 rule. Broadly speaking, the 1820s settlers were actually very successful. Only 17 years after they arrived, South Africa was clearly a Victorian imperial territory when Queen Victoria ascended the throne. It underwent a rapid cultural change in the 1820s and 1830s as the settlers nailed down their farms, built their two-room, one-floor cottages, planted vineyards, built chapels, and transformed the idea of the colony from a purely military asset to something more. The government belief that it could ship troublemakers or the financially precarious overseas and have them build a mini-aristocratic England was shown up as what it always was, completely delusional. New situations and new circumstances change cultures and societies, shaking up those hierarchies. Societies and civilizations refuse to change or adapt, are doomed. The settlers were always going to develop a unique culture of their own. In the Cape, much of this was down to missionary zeal. In a preview of the Victorian zeitgeist, the Cape was targeted by missionary evangelicals. This was encouraged by the London Missionary Society. By 1840, there were over 80 missionary stations in the Cape and even beyond the formal boundaries, manned by over 700 missionaries. As I mentioned in the shows on the Australias, there was a strong and growing movement for indigenous rights in London. The Livingstone website says that, quote, major liberal reforms were introduced at the Cape that were intended to improve Khoisan labour conditions and restrict the power of the European settlers of both their servants and slaves. The abolition of slavery in 1834 was followed by the House of Commons Select Committee on Aborigines in 1836 and the founding of the Aborigines Protection Society the following year. The Select Committee on Aborigines 
heard evidence on the devastating effects of settler colonialism upon indigenous peoples in British territories, including New South Wales, Van Diemen's Land, New Zealand, and the Cape Colony. The Boers were criticised for their treatment of the Khoisan and for instigating wars with the Corsa along the eastern frontier, raising their indignation against Britain's rule at the Cape. End quote. This seems a common first sense step to us, and probably far too little too late, but it was historically almost unprecedented for an empire to have a legal reform movement supported in civil society specifically for indigenous rights. You can't imagine that happening under the Caesars or the early Spanish Empire, except in the most general and religious terms. Nor could you imagine the Romans, the Mongols, or the Spanish, or the Chinese empires leading a worldwide campaign to abolish slavery. Some European nations swiftly followed Britain in banning the slave trade, but slavery itself often persisted for decades. Brazil abolished the trade in 1851, but didn't end slavery itself until 1888. The Qing emperor in China only formally abolished slavery in 1909. Saudi Arabia held on to slavery until 1962 in some forms, and had a long history of enslaving both black and white people. Mauritania didn't formally abolish it until 91. Not that the British were building a land of milk, honey and cultural diversity, but they at least had a cultural counterweight to the more outright imperialistic elements. It was badly needed as the slaves in the 1830s were still being treated appallingly. To give an example, this is what happened to a slave woman in the Cape Colony named Leah. Quote, Leah was 26 years old when in March 1832 she complained to the assistant protector of slaves that she had experienced violence at the hands of Sartigi van der Meer. Leah, a slave, reported that she had been struck and beaten on the back and other parts of her body with a piece of wood and a thong by Sartigi, her female owner. Leah walked for eight days from the Camdebu area of the Cape Colony, then under British rule, to the town of Graf Reinet to lay her complaint. She had very little food and water to sustain her. She carried her two-year-old child with her. Later, she reported to the assistant protector that she had been pregnant when she had come to lay her complaint and on her way back to the farm had miscarried on the road and delivered a fetus of about six months old. End quote. Even as late as 1832, there were 990 female, 1,271 male slaves in the eastern colony. They were treated appalling. But at least in 1832, it became illegal to beat female slaves. In an astonishing piece of irony, Major George Rogers was the official protector of slaves in the colony, and he said, quote, It is certainly highly desirable that the flogging of female slaves should be wholly discontinued, but some punishment should be substituted, adequate to the degree of offences which many of these stubborn, masculine women commit. The consequence is that very many female slaves 
become very insolent, and most of them highly insubordinate. They would go out at unreasonable hours and be guilty of many serious offences, which there is now no adequate punishment. They put their owners, therefore, at defiance. But the institution of slavery in empire was done. The government, the establishment, and most of the public were against it. The navy were passionate to support anti-slavery campaigns, partly for humanitarian and religious reasons, and partly to give themselves a post-Napoleonic purpose. So no matter the initial similarities, South Africa would not be allowed to follow the path of the American South. Victorian South Africa would be slave-free, although in practice the wages, conditions and legal realities for many indigenous peoples ruled by the Cape governors would be horrendous. The Boers hated this new idea though and would begin their great trek to get away from what they perceived to be the soft-hearted, indulgent British. The Royal Navy would continue its near-century of anti-slavery work not only against the horrors of the Atlantic slave trade but also against the vast flow of slaves from Africa to the Gulf states then on to the states of Borneo, Indonesia and the Far East. Of course there's another problem which is that slavery can be quite a distorting lens. For us looking back it is easy to let slavery become such a huge presence we try to relate everything to it. For the settlers discourse in Britain was around slavery which could potentially mean native peoples only understood as slaves or through missionary viewpoints and those were heavily influenced by anti-slavery narratives. The plain fact was that the majority of British people rarely left their home regions and some would never see a non-white person outside a city or a port. Writer John Mitford noted in the mid-1840s that, quote, the very laudable exertions to suppress the slave trade have induced a feeling of pity and commiseration for the swarthy nations of Africa, in which the Kafirs, unfortunately for themselves and us, participated, end quote. The reality, though, was that the Corsa weren't slaves. They weren't noble savages, bloodthirsty barbarians, or any other cliché. They were people living in their own society, their own values, beliefs, politics, and lived experiences. Nor were they inside the political structure of the colony. They were outsiders and weren't looking for the British to liberate them from slavery. Nor did they see themselves in need of help or British civilization. the reverse. Settlers expecting meek native tribes were swiftly debased of the notion. The press hadn't helped with many referring to the Kaffir Wars as trivial and the Corsa as most especially untroubling. The Times newspaper wrote in 1819 the Corsa were, quote, an uncivilised people whose character is for the most part inoffensive as their powers of annoyance are unworthy of serious notice, end quote. The settlers' views varied widely. Some rich settlers enjoyed visiting Corsa chiefs, exchanging goods and enjoying meals. They compared the Corsa to the ancient Greeks and Romans and generally indulged in the noble savage stereotyping. Since they were rich and lived a long way from the frontier, 
was the Corsa they visited were typically rich and far across the disputed zone, it was a meeting of privileged elites from both sides. Settlers who lived on the frontier tended to have a far less congenial view of the Corsa. Even those officials who were self-aware enough to realise that taking Corsa-claimed territory would inevitably lead to conflict tended to say they were still supposed to defend the settlers and so what did it matter about the rights and wrongs of it all once people started shooting? It is clear that the settlers very quickly moved from general preconceptions based on the more remote generalisations in Britain and developed their own highly personal and hostile views of the Corsa based on their own lived experiences. Nor was it just the Corsa who were having to deal with British attitudes. The Khoi Khoi were initially sought as labour for the colony, but many proved reluctant. Eventually, whole Khoi Khoi families were swept up into indentured labour. But despite support from the church and leading colonial figures, anti-slavery campaigners pushed back. John Phillips argued indentured servitude was slavery in all but name and should be abolished. London agreed and an ordinance was passed to grant the Khoi Khoi equal legal status to the colonists. Some colonists were enraged, with one stating, quote, that abominable false philanthropy which made the Khoi Khoi free and ruined them. They were people who required to be under control, both for their own benefit and the public's, end quote. You can hear the racial and imperial overtones but the government was adamant. Meanwhile, the settlers curiously thrived. Floods pushed many off their intended farms and they headed for Grahamstown. During the Battle of Grahamstown in 1819, we covered last time, there were only 25 houses. By 1830, only 11 years later, there were 400. The town traded in fur and ivory, established irrigation farming the management of merino sheep, cattle and pigs, plus grew pineapples, other fruits and cattle fodder, as well as supporting farms. The settlers also had to get used to shifts in the language. New terrain, animals, plants and social structures all needed new words, or old ones repurposed in new ways. The changes to language inevitably both reflected and drove kind of social change that the British establishment hated. Words like biltong, indaba, kip, meaning nap, wearing civvies, or a cosy instead of a swimsuit, and veld were all from the region at various time periods, along with kraal, boar, commando, cop, trek, and lager, as in to lager the wagons. As historian Penny Silver says in her article, the 1820 settlement, some aspects of its influence on the vocabulary of South African English. Quote, the settlers absorbed into their English the Cape Dutch names for mountain and gully, plant, bird and animal. As a result, despite the initial appearance in the settler diaries and poems of Glen, Rivulet and Precipice, inevitably Kloof, Spruit and Kranst, became used as a matter of course. Similarly, many settlers had to learn new skills, especially farming, 
hunting and transport riding, and the Cape Dutch terms linked to these occupations were readily available. Terms such as disselboom, jutski, rower, hamel, capita, to lead water, rust, off-saddle, trek, and skerm. As they accepted South African modes of life, so their language became linked to their surroundings by the words they borrowed. As Reverend Henry Dugmore writes, Velshohen usurped the place of Wellingtons in many quarters, and the beaver gave way to the homemade palmiette or coffee straw and the tiger skin cap, flat crowned generally, though not of Oxford University cut. End quote. And yes, yet again, I have to apologise for all of the pronunciations I butchered in that passage. Settlers also took words from Bantu and began using English words in new ways. The phrase good for or good for it, meaning able to come up with money being loaned, became a common replacement for the standard English term promissory note, for example. Canteen came to be used for a bar or tavern or just a plain old tent serving alcohol. The cultural exchange would not be one way either linguistically or even in terms of people. Native tribes had to start using terms like musket or gunpowder or Christian. As early as 1857, Tayo Sogo became the first black South African known to have studied at a university, Glasgow, and to be ordained in 1857 as a minister in the United Presbyterian Church of Scotland. He returned to South Africa with a white Scottish wife, Janet Burnside, and they had seven children, some of whom played important roles in South Africa's later history. Sogo went on to write about ethnicity and mixed-race identity in South Africa. He wanted his children to be multilingual and to return to the join Corsa as leaders, though one of them became a civil servant and then a journalist involved in the South African Native Congress in 1899. Nor was this a unique example. None of that would have happened without the cultural interchanges caused by the settlers. And so the colony developed. James Backhouse, in December 1838, wrote, On approaching Grahamstown, we were struck with the uninviting appearance of its site, which is in a naked country at the foot of a low, rocky sandstone ridge. The present town consists of a few streets, one of which is spacious and serves as a marketplace. The streets are regularly laid out and the houses are neat and white or yellow. The inhabitants are about 4,000, almost exclusively English. There are places of worship belonging to the Roman Catholics, Episcopalians, Methodists, Baptists, and independents. Adjacent to the town, there are the crowns or villages of Fingos and Khoikhoi. It was also the hub of a sophisticated military communication system by 1837, perhaps the best in the world outside the British mainland. It was part supported by professional military forts. As a paper from Rhodes University shows, quote, the planning of the system of frontier defence after the War of 1835, fell to three extremely able men, 
Major General C.G. Lewis, Captain Javoy, and a civilian employee of the War Office, Henry Hall. Javoy later became famous as Victorian Britain's great military fortifier. It was he who built the Solent Forts. The present structure of the Trompter's Drift Fort was therefore built in 1837, or shortly after, together with the Double Drift Fort and Fort Brown, which is slightly larger. Further east, other strong points, such as Forts Cox and Thompson, also appeared after the War of 1846 to give the defence system greater depth, end quote. There were also two expensive lines of semaphore systems, allowing an almost unheard of speed of communication to various vital stations. The system was destroyed in the War of 1846, but before the invention of the telegraph, it was the premier communication system. Victorian South Africa was growing as an imperial domain, its early single street towns and scattered farms becoming dense population centres, but it wasn't going to be peaceful. No matter how many tragedies along the way, the floodgates were open though. There was new land, food and opportunity, welcome or not, justified or not. The British Empire in South Africa now had a firm foothold. One descendant of a settler family was wonderful enough to write his family history in a work called The Barbers of the Peak, a history of the Barber, Athelstone and Peak families. In it, he describes an experience in 1846 which illustrates the dangers of living an isolated settler farm. Quote, we are at Thorncliffe. Fred Barber, John Atherston and a number of bokers are defending the house against a night attack by the Kaffirs. By the light of smoky lamps, you see their bristling beards and ragged clothes. The smell of gunpowder is strong and the room is blue with smoke. Rapidly, they measure out powder and pour it down their musket barrels. You can see the ramrods shine as they push down the ball and wads. Poor Webb, with his broken ankle, is groaning on the bed in the next room, and Grandma Boker is bathing it in warm water. Anna and Mary are in the kitchen, melting lead and casting fresh bullets. There is a heavy fire from the Kaffirs, who have crept up under the cover of darkness. Their bullets thud against the house. Occasionally, one smashes through a window and flattens itself against the opposite wall. Fred, Holden, William and the others are crouching by the windows, firing at the flashes of the enemy muskets. End quote. You know it's a hot action if the women are having to make fresh ammunition during the battle. That's 26 years after the first settlements but it goes to show that violent death was never really off the cards. Notice that through trade, tribute and capture in battle or raiding, the Corsa had plenty of firepower. They couldn't manufacture firearms, but they could get them and be very effective with them. Just as the British and the Dutch Boers were establishing themselves, the new Zulu kingdom was being created at the same time. The Zulu had acquired the name and identity at some point in the 17th century and migrated to what is now Mozambique, where they started trading with the Portuguese. 
So they weren't native to the Natal area any more than the British or Dutch were. When the famous Shaka Zulu came to power, he swiftly turned his minor agricultural tribe into a formidable empire. His expansion was a brilliant mix of intimidation and outright wars. By 1823, tribes neighbouring the Zulus had been massacred or burnt out and driven off. Tribes fleeing him in turn engaged in a period known as Mifikani, or the crushing, as they in turn raided and burnt other tribes as they fled. Shaka was an extremely good commander and clever politician, albeit bloodthirsty and extremely dictatorial. He increased his army from, on some figures, 350 men to eventually over 20,000, depending on your sources, as he won more and more conflicts. He used his early reign to change the culture, to support a new style of war making, including the famous Asagai, Spear. This in turn let him change the culture more to support his military success. A feedback loop was established that enabled the Zulus to become the dominant culture and political power in the region. Old clan identities were buried. Clans that joined Shaka were required to give up their identities and histories and become Zulus. The greater manpower that flooded to serve the successful Shaka allowed him to engage in more innovative tactics. This was not without immense human costs. Shaka overall lacked a grand strategic goal. According to Donald Morris in the classic book, Washing of the Spears, quote, Shaka's military activity to date had been forced by events. As he had one by one removed the threats to his existence, each step had been dictated by the last one, and the sequence had been logical. Now, for the first time, he was free to act as he pleased, and only logic disappeared. Dingisweo, though, had been motivated by a grand design, a closely reasoned dream, a political union which he devoted all his skill and power. Shaka, as his successor, displayed no such motivation. Having consolidated his base, he could conceive of no further objectives with which to use his power, and he employed it blindly, striking out wherever his whims led him. He waged war for the sake of waging war, and the Zulus got rich on the hundreds of thousands of cattle the Impis brought back from their raids. What became of the clans they had been lifted from? What ravages occurred beyond his ken? Interested him not a whit. Shaka was extremely ruthless. Areas became depopulated as he waged wars, even wiping out women and children. Thousands of people unwilling to surrender to Zulu dominance and assimilation fled. This in turn created a wave of exiles fleeing the conflict many of whom headed south towards the Cape, often bumping into migrating boars or aggressive corsa. Other opponents fled north, cutting a sway through other tribes. The formation of the Zulu Empire was violent, disruptive, brutal. The Europeans were scared of the powerful and aggressive Zulus. Needless to say, the Europeans didn't understand the culture that sustained Zulu political structures 
and mostly viewed them as barbarians on the frontier. Even if they had understood, they would have hardly been thrilled to find a military warrior culture established on their doorstep that required frequent conflict to keep its warriors happy and supplied with tribute. The roots of the later Anglo-Zulu wars were clearly in place. Still, things stayed mostly calm until in 1835, lots of the Boers decided to leave British-controlled territory and create a homeland for themselves in a great trek. It was to be their promised land in the interior and 14 to 16,000 Boers left Cape Colony. I can't stress how important this event was to the white Afrikaans Boer mythos. It is almost a foundation myth along the lines of Washington crossing the Delaware or the Battle of Hastings, regardless of the actual historical facts. It also involved the massacre of dozens of native villages. The narrative and legacy of the event is hugely contested in South Africa today, especially since it is sometimes presented as a migration into empty land by God-fearing and peaceful people, whilst the reality was it involved the displacement of native peoples and a huge amount of killing, including some significant battles. All you need to understand is that the Great Boar Trek was basically a series of wagon trains moving eastward away from the British and Cape Colony, heading straight through areas reeling from the crushing we mentioned earlier. It had such an enormous impact that it is still felt in South Africa today, and it certainly had an immense impact on the British Victorian Empire since they had to deal with the consequences. South Africa was a violent place, which meant the arms industry saw a chance to profit. Governors of the Cape, as late as the 1850s, expressed frustration at the constant demands for conflict by the settlers, the profits it brought private citizens in land, and the enormous expense to the government and taxpayer. It has been estimated that in the Eighth Frontier War alone, the actual legitimate figure that should have been claimed as compensation for losses or equipment was around £66,393, whereas the actual losses claimed by the settlers, commandos and various regimental quartermasters amounted to £405,000. That's a staggering level of corruption. To translate that to modern money, that's an appropriate claim of approximately £4 million or $5.5 million, whilst the amount actually claimed was £24.5 million or $34 million. That's for one of the wars. With that kind of money involved, you can see why many people loved a profitable little war, whilst the government screamed about waste and the opposition screamed about corruption. Yet for the settlers, those who survived the hard life, there were opportunities for social mobility and wealth far beyond what they could have dreamed of in Britain. They felt they had earned it with their blood and sweat. It was their land by right of conquest, of labour and of their lifeblood. Whether others felt they had a right to it or not, they would put down roots that would last long after Victoria herself had died and, just like the idea of the convict in Australian history has changed over time, so too the idea of the settlers has changed. 
Historian Penny Silver notes, quote, Reverend Henry Dugmore, speaking in 1870, at the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the settlement, said, What sort of social positions are occupied by the old settlers' sons? They occupy magistracies and mayoralties. They fill seats in our Legislative Council and House of Assembly. There are settlers' sons, members of the government at Natal, and in the 1970s, coming from settler stock is seen by many as a distinct social asset. End quote. The settlers would mostly make the transition from precarious outsiders to members of the established elite themselves. We have now spent a lot of time on the Cape Colony, but at least you can now look at the map of the empire in 1837 and have a rough idea of how we got there when Victoria ascended the throne and the shape of events in South Africa during the 1840s. She now had two very powerful settler colonies that linked to each other, the Australias and the Cape. Of course, we've got lots of things to cover in Africa in the future, but for now, we are going to move away from South Africa. We are going to turn back to the motherland again and catch up with events there as we move into the 1840s. We've got some huge things to cover, some nice surprises in the pipeline and much more. But first, I'm going to do a Halloween special on the 31st of October rather than a main episode. I hope that's okay. Take care and bye for now. Okay, thanks for listening everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.